Welcome to the world's premier Black Crows podcast. State of America. Hosted by two of the band's most dedicated fans, David Hudson and Ian Rice. And now, let's get the show on the road. All right, everybody, welcome back to another episode of the State of America podcast. I am one of your hosts, Ian Rice, and with me, as always, Mr. David Hudson. David, how are you? I'm still full from Thanksgiving, Ian. Still? Yeah. Well, that's okay. Yeah. I, I saw what you were cooking up there, and I smoked turkey, and uh, you know I would have gorged myself on that as well. Lots of football, lots of turkey, and lots of dressing. <laughs> you changed the order this time. <laughs> a little bit, yeah. The turkey was good. <laughs> That's a good thing, man. It's a good holiday. As, a, as a, I think it's an older person's holiday because I appreciate Thanksgiving a lot more as each year goes by than I did, you know, as a kid. Let me think about it. It's built around food, sitting around, and for the other ninety nine point nine nine percent of us that love football, it's uh, it's about watching football. You probably watch that Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade, don't you? No, I do watch that parade, but that's only because my wife loves that parade. I think mm. it's, I mean, especially this year, I was really scraping the bottom of the barrel in terms of uh, entertainment. On <laughs> Have you ever been to it? No, I wouldn't uh, do such a thing. Have you ever been to see the ball drop? No, that's a, that's a fool's paradise, my friend. So you're really not a New Yorker? If that if going to the Macy's parade and going to watch the ball drop make you a New Yorker, then I guess no, I'm not. Everybody I've ever known that's been up there to watch the ball drop said it's miserable. Yeah. You either have to stake your claim and basically pee your pants for the evening if you want to stay there or fight your way into a local bar to go to the bathroom. I don't know. It just doesn't seem. What percentage of people that are there pee, pee their pants? I've heard. I mean, I, you know, I don't know for certain. I don't actually know anybody that's ever been down in the trenches i mean my wife's friend had an apartment in in the city for a bit and they went there you know watched it from the the balcony and all that but i've heard that people you know put adult diapers on and and all this i don't know it just doesn't seem like especially some years it gets brutally cold how horrible is the subway afterwards i would imagine it's not good i don't know man i stay well away from that area so if i gave you ten thousand dollars to go to the thanksgiving day parade and to uh, see the ball drop, you wouldn't do it. It's five grand each. No way. Really? Yeah. What okay. do you mean? Well, well, not all, I guess not all of us have that rice money. <laughs> it's good to be the king. <laughs> yeah. Big money, Ian. I know. Well, what can I tell you, man? You know? And that's after taxes. So it, it would be after taxes. I just, I don't think I could do it. It just doesn't, it's not an attractive idea to me. Okay. There's a there's a price point I have for pissing my pants, David. And I don't think five grand is it. <laughs> Look, you could you could wear some cheap pants. Just get some like black pants. I have dignity, you know. Okay. All right. I'm just seeing where the line is. <laughs> so what's been going on, man? Otherwise. That's about it. I think we just went through record store day and uh all I really wanted was uh that cure wish picture disc. And I got that. I got three of them actually, thanks to uh Thomas Jones, and then I hit both record stores here and got one at each one. And I know you got one, and you got that Mose Allison. Yes, that's right. And uh, yeah, it was great. I appreciate uh, uh, Mr. Jones and Mr. Hillman uh, going out there and trying to help us out. Uh, greatly appreciated. And uh, also, we just had a 
monthly Zoom hang for the Patreon people, and uh, we recorded an episode while we were doing that. We're going to revisit our favorite Black Crows covers, something we did way back on our fifth episode, and we were going to make it a regular thing, and we never circled back around, so we decided to do that, and we had uh, some of the Zoom hang participants join in with us. I think it came out really cool. I did too, and, and everybody privately messaged me that my covers were better than yours, which is usually how those things go. First of all, I know that didn't happen, and uh, you know, if, you know, if it's you don't have to make everything a competition. Such is life, Ian. Such is life. No, we had <laughs> we had a lot of fun doing that. Had a good turnout, and uh, our, our Zoom hangs are we're doing more of them than we have been uh, in recent months, and they're a lot of fun. Usually on Saturday nights or, or Sunday afternoons. Yeah, and uh, the. Recording of the episode was part out of necessity because you are going to be traveling for the next couple of weeks and part out of experimentation and see how it goes. And it was a lot of fun. So I, I would venture to guess we're going to do a few more episodes in that manner. Yeah. So if you uh, want to join us, uh, go to Patreon and type in State of America and we'd love to have you. Absolutely. And uh, as far as the Black Crows world goes, the never ending Shake Your Money Maker tour rolls on and they just. Went through Japan, of course, and uh, looked like they finished up in Australia. Where and, everyone uh, was kung fu fighting. Yes, there was a incident on stage where somebody rushed the stage and tried to get a hold of primarily Rich. And, uh, you know, the guy kind of sidestepped security a little bit. So uh, Rich, in uh, Keith Richards fashion, took a nice swing at him with his guitar. I mean, some people remarked that you know, it was unnecessary. Some people were on the other side of the fence. I personally think, you know, in the days since the unfortunate incident with Dimebag Daryl, you, know, you can't be too careful. You don't know what somebody's running up there for, what their state is. I you can't have that. It's just like you break into somebody's house and they shoot you. You're the one that started that chain reaction. When you jump up on stage, you're the one that started that. It's, you know, whatever happens, happens. Yeah. I mean, what I imagine it'd be like running onto the field at a sporting event. Like you, you knew the consequence. You know what I mean? Yeah. It didn't look like the guy had bad intentions. I bet he was probably just out of his head, but that shot from Rich should have sobered you up. Yeah, that'll snap you back to reality. I mean, it looked like even Sven took his base off. And was, well, I mean, when you make Sven mad, you've done something. Yeah, it's it's hard to make the kindest man in the world angry. So uh, I, I do want to mention, you know, after seeing it, you know, because a lot of people posted it on the social media platform. So you get all the comments and I honestly don't remember who and I tried to go back and find it, but I couldn't find it. But someone made the the great comment that it's nice to see the Robinson brothers fighting somebody else instead of each other for a chase. <laughs> I thought that was a good one. They were at least unified for that. That's for sure. <laughs> so you know, it's it's a nice thing, man. But uh, they're heading down to South America, and I think that wraps things up for the year. Hopefully, that's the end of Shake Your Money Maker and on to varied set list. Yeah, it would be nice to see what's on the horizon. I would venture to guess that the Shaking Money Maker thing would be wrapped up by now if it wasn't for the COVID delay. Unless they're going to Antarctica or Africa. I mean, I, I do think it's nice that they are back. They went back to Japan, they went back to Australia, South America, you know, places they hadn't hit for a while. I don't think they've been in South America since 96, 97. Yeah, hopefully our buddy Pedro is going to be able to make one of those shows. Yeah, that'd be great. But uh, other than that, we'll see what the new year brings. But we have a few things lined up to uh, carry out the rest of the year, including our top album picks for the year. We're each going to pick about five of our favorite albums for the year, and then we're going to do a giveaway with a copy of each of our number one picks. 
Yeah, look at you, Ian Claus. And that's gonna be that's not gonna be for Patreon. That's gonna be for general public. Every listener will have an opportunity to uh participate in that and uh looking forward to it and then looking forward to what next year will bring. This will be our fourth year. Yeah, it's been a while, hasn't it? Yeah, but it's been a lot of fun, my friend, and we're going to continue that fun. And in that spirit, we're finally going to get to our fantastic interview with Smile and Jay McDowell, formerly of BR549. He had some great stories for us. Super nice guy. Has been one of these people that has just happened to be in certain situations. He's a great, great follow on Facebook, and he's constantly f- posting uh, pictures of, of like weird kind of crazy things that have happened to him in his career. And then he runs the Musicians Hall of Fame in Nashville. And uh, if somebody of note comes through there, he uh, takes a picture with them and has a nice word, to, nice word or two to say about them. Yeah, definitely follow him on the social media platforms, particularly Facebook. He posts a wealth of very, very cool stories there. Definitely worth a read, each one. I'm telling you, man, that guy's got a book in him. He does. He does. And uh, I don't think he does a lot of interviews, so it's pretty cool of him to agree to do this. Yeah, and we hope to be uh, checking back in with him again in the future. He's definitely now a friend of the program. Yes, he is. And to coincide with the release of this episode on our social media platforms, we're going to give people an opportunity to win two BR549 albums on CD. Unfortunately, they never saw any vinyl releases for for their stuff, but uh, we're going to give out two copies of their CDs, so keep your eyes peeled for that just after the episode uh, comes out. All right, David, so what do you say we jump on over to this interview with Smile and Jay McDowell? Sounds good. All right. We'll see you next time, everybody.
Well, Jay, first of all, thank you for uh, coming on. We've had uh, numerous people reach out to us and want somebody from BR549 on. So uh, first of all, thank you for taking a little time out to come on and talk to us. Well, my pleasure. It's uh, great to be here. So you um, are now, you work at the Musicians Hall of Fame in Nashville. Is that correct? And you're in charge of like all their audio visual presentation? Yeah, uh, uh, that's how I got hired was doing video work for the museum. And uh, so I'm the multimedia archivist is what they call me, but jack of all trades. Yes. <laughs> well, I mean, I haven't been there yet. I wanted to go there the last time Ian and I were in Nashville and didn't get a chance to get over there. But from what I understand, it's it's fairly high tech and, and, and a pretty cool place to go visit. Just walk us through a little bit about the, the Musicians Hall of Fame. Sure thing. So we honor musicians and people behind the scenes of all types of music. We're in Nashville, Tennessee, right downtown, but uh, we include all types of music. We're not just country music. So we really highlight session musicians and road musicians and people that are kind of behind the spotlight. The, I guess our founder, when he started the museum, Joe Chambers, looked at it like the lead singers get all the attention. <laughs> what about the drummers and the bass players and the guitarists and uh, you know the, the percussionists? And that's really what we are about. So Uh, We have an amazing collection of uh, instruments used on hit recordings. So things from Memphis and Philly and Atlanta and Chicago and Los Angeles, all the kind of recording scenes uh, through the years, obviously a big Nashville section, but uh, you can see things like uh, the drum set that was at Stax Records in Memphis on all those great hits by Otis Redding and Sam and Dave and Wilson Pickett, and uh, then you can go to the Motown section and see uh, James Jamerson's electric bass. Uh, Again, some of these names may not resonate with people, but when you realize the songs they played on, you you say, oh, I know that song. Oh, I know that song. And uh, so for the people that dig into old record liner notes and, and scour that information and connect the dots, we are a sort of mecca for those people. Uh, and we, we feature, there's a whole Jimi Hendrix section, there's a Johnny Cash section um, with a bunch of their personal items, uh, instruments and, and personal effects, clothing, uh, that kind of stuff. And then there's the Grammy Gallery, which is all interactive, where you can record and mix and DJ and play drums with Ringo, sing with Ray Charles, all kinds of interactive things. So it's really great for people of all ages. We know th- those people are really the unsung heroes of, of music. And the more I've gotten into music, you realize a lot of times you'll have Tim McGraw has this band that he tours with, but they don't play on his records. Right. You know, it, it's, it's other people. You look at people like Steve Lukather, people know him from Toto. I read he's played on over 2000 albums. Perfect um, example of what we are about. The guys from the people in Muscle Shoals, these guys come in and they can just get it done lay it down, play it like you want, and it cuts down on cost, you know, studio time. Right. So I think that's really cool that you guys do that because they really are the unsung heroes. How, how long have you been there? The museum opened in 2006, and I came on board uh, shortly after that. So Joe had been planning it and, and building it and, and working it up for a, a while before I came on board. But uh, I feel like I've been there since the beginning. It's Yeah, it's been amazing to see it grow from – at the beginning, it was uh, we, we got Hal Blaine's drum set. That was kind of that cornerstone. Uh, you know, we wanted to, to get something that, that people would 
take notice of, and other musicians, certainly, uh, again, Hal Blaine may not be a household name, but he's a session drummer from Los Angeles. Mamas and the Papas, Jan and Dean, the Association, Gary Lewis and the Playboys, the Monkees, uh, just Sonny and Cher, just so many, so many hit recordings, the Birds, all these uh, 60s and 70s rock and pop things. Uh, having his drum set is akin to having 20 drum sets because of all the big hits he played on. So as that kind of grew from that over the years, now it's an amazing full collection and we really represent all those recorded scenes. But, but uh, to see the kind of organic growth that Joe Chambers has allowed to happen uh, has been really amazing. What part of downtown is it located? We are right in the heart of it. Uh, it's the first level of the municipal auditorium, which was built in 1962, I believe it opened. And uh, it's a 10,000-seat arena above us, and then we're on the lower level. And uh, so, yeah, we're just right right in the middle downtown there. Now, how did you transition from, you know, playing in, in a band to getting into, into the line of work you're in now? <laughs> the short answer is Keith Richards. <laughs> but let me tell you about that. So uh, BR549 was doing shows, and really the Black Crows tour was kind of the first, it was the first big tour we were on. And suddenly we're meeting all these people and every time we turned around, it was, we're doing shows with Bob Dylan. Okay. We're doing stuff with the Brian Setzer orchestra. Uh, we're doing something with the smashing pumpkins. It was just like this head spinning, crazy dream. And we're a traditional country band. We did not ever envision. I mean, we'll talk about the black crows, but we never envisioned that these rock and roll people would pick up on what we were doing. So we find ourselves in New York city with Keith Richards, he was doing a solo thing with the expensive winos. And uh, we didn't have a camera. We just wanted a picture. All we wanted was a photo with Keith Richards. <laughs> and we didn't have a camera. Even Keith was looking through his people for a camera. And uh, I remember Keith Richards saying, you know how many people take my picture? And when I want my picture taken, I can't find a camera. <laughs> so we did find a camera. We got a photo with Keith. The next day, I called Sony Records, our record label, and said, hey, send us a camera just so we have a digital camera out here. Now, this was you know late 90s. Digital cameras were a new thing. The idea was just let me have a camera on the bus because we're in these amazing situations. Well, a couple days later, a really nice video camera shows up that took still photos. So I just started videotaping everything. And again, like I said, we're in these amazing situations with these famous people. And I'm just walking around with a little video camera. And as I had all this amazing footage, I wanted to manipulate it and learn about editing. And so I started editing. And with Sony Records help, I transitioned when it, when it became time for me to want to start a family and not be traveling all the time. I started working with Sony doing video editing and they started hiring me for projects that they had. So I was working on country EPKs and music videos. And it was a really nice transition for me because I, I could sleep in my own bed at night and work on video. Now, one of the vice presidents at Sony was a woman named Kay Smith, and she was retiring from Sony and was involved with this new museum that was just starting up and with Joe Chambers. And so through her recommendation, uh, I started working in the museum, doing the video work. It started out as a two-week job. And... That was 17 years ago. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
Yes. Hopefully they'll just keep going. Right. <laughs> you're, you're talking about you guys finding yourself in all these kind of like crazy situations. Like when you guys came out, you also had the alt country music going on. Do you think that helped bring attention to, to your band? Absolutely. And, and country music is such a wide term that covers, that's like saying rock music. What is mm-hmm. rock music? Rock music is different to the listener from listener to listener. How you perceive something is, you know, and I I always use that example. Rock is such a wide coverage that includes so much. When you say country music, that means different things to different people. Every day of my life, people would come to me and say, I don't like country music, but I like you guys. And I would say, well, what do you call our kind of music? I don't know, but but, uh, uh, they would kind of go speechless. Because if anything, we were trying to be as pure country as could be. Now, Rich and Chris were brought up with that in their past. So it struck a chord with them. And Steve got on board and somehow they got our record early on and reached out to us. Now, looking back to our fear going into that first tour was we're a country band. We have an upright bass and a fiddle. I mean, that's not it's not apologetic. We're not coming in saying, Oh, we, we do something that's a little different than you, you know, we're coming in saying this is BR five, four, nine. And we do this. We were scared to death to go on stage at first. And about the second show, I think it hit me that, Oh, the black crows fans as a whole, they want to discover new music and they want to be turned on by a fiddle. They didn't know that they would like this, but you know, it's, it's, it made us realize over time with other situations and playing with other acts, we need to just go out and do what we do the best we can do it. But yes, there was a movement going on in those early days of the internet. That's, that's the real key to mm-hmm. all the no depression thing was that's no depression started as a bulletin board on the web for this new thing, you know, that people were having in their homes and having access to to find out there are other people in the world that like what I like. And, you know, and, and we take that for granted. Now we can sit here in our own bedrooms and talk to each other over the computer. Right. It's no big deal. But 1996, that was a brand new thing. And you're finding out these other scenes going on in these other towns. And you find out there's a scene going on in Minneapolis and there's a scene in Southern California. And there, you know, there's these other bands doing, different variations of the same thing we're doing all over Texas. It was happening. Uh, old 97s, all these groups that were tapping into the same kind of energy that we were. And then we find, okay, well, the black crows are a tapping into the same kind of energy, pulling from different old types of music and B the black crows want to expose their fans to different bands. And that I didn't know that was a thing until we became one of those bands. And then, we find out from the Black Crows fans that, oh, yeah, they they get the Dirty Dozen Brass Band on tour with them, and they get this band on tour with them, and they want to expose their fans to new music. And so we were really thankful for that. That that really brought a lot of people on board. Now, something that you posted on social media very recently, you were speaking about how on tour with the Black Crows, you had the, the genesis of an idea to you guys open the set and then gradually one of BR549 drops out and one of the Black Crows comes on until it transitions into fully the Black Crows, but it never really came to fruition. But that sounded like such a fantastic idea. What stopped that oh, from yeah. happening? Well, the the venues we were playing looked at 
the times that you switch over from band to band is a time that everybody hits the beer stand ah. and sells the beer. So, so that, that, that was always pushback from the venues. We, Chris and, and Steve, they were always wanting to get jump on stage with us. We were opening the show and we'd be playing our set and they'd be standing in the wings. And at first it would like, like Steve would be off just off to the side of the stage, like hitting on a, a box or something, you know, just kind of jamming with us. And, and, and so we'd kind of like, Hey, you know, bring the box out. Come on. You know, <laughs> he'd, he'd jump on stage and then, then it would, it would be the next night he would, he would take over the drums for a, a couple songs. And then Chris would come out and sing with us. Johnny, the bass player would come and, and, and play. And he was not as comfortable on the upright bass, but it was fun for him to, to take over the upright bass for a song. So with that, it was, it was kind of like the, the guy, the, the, the crows were all kind of itching to, to be involved. And, and so I think that was the spark of the idea was we were sitting around after a show one night talking about like, oh, it would blow people's minds if the, you know, the audience as a whole didn't even really realize that it was just a gradual transformation. And all of a sudden, uh, a lot of times, I think at that tour, they were opening the set with Jealous again. And it was a case where we realized like the band could just kind of morph into the Black Crows. And before you knew it, they'd hit click into their big hit and the crowd would suddenly really, you know, some people would be noticing and be in on it. But uh, I, I feel like a lot of the the real fans would be kind of oblivious to it. And, oh, what, what's happening? You know, like, did I black out for a second? Well, you talked about kind of being a little nervous with the reception from the, the band. One of the bands they took out very early on that went on to, to have a really good career was the Jayhawks. Oh, sure. And uh, we've interviewed Mark Olson from the Jayhawks on here. And he talked about how he was a folk music guy and he really knew nothing about rock and roll and, and nothing about the black crows. Were you a fan of the band before you guys opened for them, or was that not really what you were listening to at the time? Well, they were so so well known. Of course, I I knew I knew their record. I guess they just had two or three out by the time we hooked up with them. Mm-hmm. I looked it up. We did nineteen shows with them, and um, yeah, going into it, so we we come from playing for Tips in this little band, this little bar in Nashville. Uh, we had opened some country shows. We did some stuff with uh, Tim McGraw. We did some opening slots with George Jones, but these were one-offs, uh, one or two nights. Uh, we did some Vince Gill shows. A great experience for us to be thrown into a big crowd or an arena type of setting, but to do a full on tour, uh, that, that was jumping into the deep end of the pool. And they were understanding uh meaning the crows they they understood that and and really helped us and they were encouraging us that that yeah the the crowds you know you have got nothing to worry about and in the end we didn't but we sure did appreciate that but that was the best exposure for us now the the other side of the coin with the rock and roll in the country world is we were out there kissing ass at country radio stations trying to get our brand new record on the air and the black crows of course had been down that road on the rock and roll side. And they were always pushing us to be like, don't bow down to the radio, you know, like, like right. stand up to them. And, and, you know, they, they were coming at it from the rock and roll side and, and we were, we were going in with the polite country boys uh, <laughs> mindset to the radio stations. And, uh, and uh, it was, it was funny to get advice from the black crows guys to say, you know, F them and, you know, do the thing and, you know, <laughs> 
listen to us. This this worked for us. Now they had they had some they had a point at that time. They they'd really been to the top of the mountain, but uh, it was it was two different mindsets as far as that was where it was the most evident was in the country uh, versus pop radio worlds. It was a, a different mindset, but I liked having a bit of that uh, guidance from from those guys that had been through the ringer in the you know four or five years before we came along. Now you talked about sit-ins and you guys playing with members of the band. Did you ever either backstage or on stage, did y'all ever just have a moment to jam with Ed Harsh? Oh yeah. Yeah. Eddie was the best. So gosh, uh, <laughs> what was interesting to me, my takeaway from the whole experience was the black crows had been through this hurricane and all this craziness and they're trying to cope with their personal lives and they're out on the road and they're doing this tour and we show up and it was like we would hang out with Eddie for he'd come to our bus and hang out and we'd be talking music and, and jamming around a bit, you know, as they were setting up and doing sound checks and stuff. And what a great player he was and, and learning his backstory and the people he had played with. I This is top of my head, but I want to say he was a Detroit guy, mm-hmm. and, but he'd, he'd been you know played with all those blues greats and that was his background. So yeah, when, when he got out and set in with us, it, it, cranked us up a notch. It was strong. Well, what, and, what's interesting about him is everybody that we've talked to that's in the band, around the band, they all say, if we're going to be completely honest with you, Ed Harsh is the best musician we've ever played with. <laughs> and, you know, and just said that, you know, and the thing is about Ed, you know, obviously, you know, the, the, the Black Crows, they, <clears throat> the fan base can be kind of hard and different members of the band catch shrapnel every now and then. Eddie Harsh doesn't. Yeah. And everybody to the T just said he was the sweetest person you'll ever meet. Yeah. Yeah. I, I remember uh, something somewhere where Chris was talking about old weird Ed. <laughs> and it was the most love. It was, it was a loving, it was a compliment. Yeah. 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 But weird Ed, man, that was, it was, it was, he was just such a unique soul. So uh, where I was going earlier was the, the guys in the band in the black crows were, I realized they were trying to kind of escape each other. We, we would hang out with one of them at a time. And so Ed would be on our bus hanging out and he'd be there for a couple hours maybe. And then Mark Ford would show up and Eddie would kind of, you know, slink away. And, and I, I, at first I thought that was odd, but then I realized, and especially with a little mileage under my belt that, Oh, these guys are, they're constantly with each other and everywhere they turn, there's that guy. Oh, there's that guy. And, and, uh, you know, as, as tumultuous as band relationships can be, they, seemingly all got along but i realized oh they all need their space so it was kind of only as if we ever hung out with them individually but musically we all had things in common and and we were all excited to to find those out and explore those things so yes jamming with eddie was really really strong and, and he and plus it fit in because for him to sit in and play with us he wasn't like taking away a part for johnny to play bass i'd have to sit out and that's fine and i was happy to do that but Johnny didn't want to come in and, and try to play bass every night. Eddie could sit in and just kind of come up and join in on a song and, and then disappear again. And so I think that made it a lot easier. Same with Steve. Steve wanted to play drums with us every night. And occasionally he would just get up there and, and shake an egg into a mic or something like that. It wasn't regular that he would take over the drum set, but, uh, you know, because that put our drummer out. And so uh, that was that was just kind of an interesting side note. But, yeah. 
I, I, I appreciate you bringing up Ed Harsh because he was a good one. Now it's it's you said before you did 19 shows with them, but it, it seems it feels like your association with them was much longer than that. Uh, did you continue to work with them in any capacity after the tour? Well, we would do one-offs with them after that. Uh, so I looked it up. Our first gig with them was July 6th of 1996 in San Bernardino, California. And that was at the Blockbuster Pavilion. And my memories of that was that was where the old Us Festivals had, had mm-hmm. taken Yeah, place. yes. So it was easily the biggest audience I've ever stepped in front of. Now, and, and we were opening acts so early on where the crowd hadn't even really filled up yet. So, but to me, that was a, a, an eye-opening thing. And boy, again, stepping out into that and you don't know how you're going to be received. In hindsight, again, it was music fans and we were going to be fine. We, need, we needed to just go out there. But I remember us kind of thinking like, well, should we, should we rock it up a little bit or, or crank it up a little? And of course, we just needed to stay with what, with what brought us there. Mm-hmm. So, so that was the thing. Now, as I, as I looked through the tour, it was really fascinating to me. At our level, starting out at that point, we are kind of just going from town to town. Uh, the routing, we weren't pulling in the big bucks. So we were just taking what we could get on the way to go. With the Crows, they had it set up so it would be like, okay, California, Vegas. Uh, then we were booked at a Nashville private show, so we had to fly back to Nashville. Uh, then it was up to Michigan, to uh, Rochester, Michigan, Minneapolis, Chicago, so Midwest there. But that was a lot of travel for us that we weren't used to. And, and we're on the bus, and like I said, if we had to fly back, we would, but we had started at a little club in downtown Nashville and we weren't ready for the road. We're thrown into this thing. We got a record out. We take off, we're playing around, we get a bus. Uh, but then to get on a big tour like that, you start seeing the miles pile up and how, how involved it is. It was, it was a big, a big transition for us. And what kind of exposure did that give you moving forward? Like after you, after you did that tour? Oh, it was gigantic. Um, during that tour, uh, we found out that when we were in New York City, uh, we played the Supper Club with the Crows two nights. Mm. That was a nice thing for us to do two nights in the same venue. We found out that Conan O'Brien was going to have us on. To uh, That was our first big national TV exposure. And I, I can't help but think that uh, our exposure to the Crows crowd gave us a different wrinkle. Uh, we weren't a straight-up country band. Of course, straight up country bands and straight up country acts can get on late night TV, but it was an easier sell for the record label to get us on these Good Morning Americas or these more mainstream shows because we had one foot in the rock world being on tour with the Crows right. uh, doing these things. There was a, gosh, it, it, because we weren't comfortably in what was the mainstream country radio format at the time because we were too country people didn't know what to call it. So, okay. We had a, a, a foot in the alternative world, meaning the record label would market us to alternative stations. Now the funny outcome of that was from night to night, we weren't sure what crowd was going to show up. If it wasn't us opening for a big act like the crows, if it's just a BR five, four, nine show, in this city, are we getting played on country radio, which happens? So maybe we're maybe we get this boot scoot line dance crowd. 
maybe we're played on the alternative radio station where we get the punk rock kids. Maybe we're played on this, you know, it may, it may be showing up on a community station where it's just college kids. So it was really fascinating for us to go through that, not knowing what our crowd was going to be. But again, that drove home the fact that we needed to just do what we do. We didn't need to try to cater to what crowd showed up because we found that if we were true to ourselves, it, it rang true with everybody. Now you're talking about being on Conan. I've always heard that Conan had to approved all the mu- musical acts that came on there. That speaks highly of you because Conan a lot at that time really exposed a lot of alternative and indie acts to, right. to the mainstream. To me, if, if back in that day, knowing what, what, you know, you guys knew that's, that was a pretty good nod from, from Conan to be able to come on his show. Oh, big time. Now Conan, he brought in a, a he said he, he brought in his Gretsch guitar that day we were there. And, and while we were doing the sound check and everything, he came out and kind of jammed with us a little bit. It was, it was real loose, but like he, he had no intention of doing it on the show. Yeah. But it, it was true. He, he would be, um, he was really into the same kind of thing we were. He was interested about what, where we were coming from musically. Uh, a lot of the, especially the rockabilly side, he was familiar with that. And then uh, we crossed paths with him. We, you know, when, in New York City, he would come to our shows and, and he was, he was really, uh, uh, really supportive of us. And I, I don't know, I can't speak to the fact that, that if he personally picked who was on the show, but uh, it didn't, it didn't hurt. It didn't hurt us. Sure. <laughs> now you guys went on to play Chris and Kate Hudson's wedding. Is that right? We did. Now, how does that happen? Well, um, they reached out to us about doing that. And it was in Aspen, I believe. And um, it was on New Year's Eve. And my favorite memory of that was the ceremony itself was super cold. It was outside. It was very short. It was very brief. The big party, the reception then uh, where we performed was in a nice lodge and it was, it was warm and toasty and everything. Now the funny part happens the next day, New Year's day, the, the wedding's over. It was a lovely affair. Everybody had a good time. Our bus was parked out in front of Kurt and Goldie's house and it was snowing and something went wrong in our bus and it wouldn't start. Now we had a generator, so we had power and we had heat. And as far as we were concerned, we were fine. We, we, weren't, we weren't worried for our safety, but we realized it was New Year's Day and, and the, the bus driver was trying to get in touch with somebody for this part we needed. It wasn't going to be there till the next morning. So, okay, we're stuck. We're just going to, you know, we made sure it was fine with, with Kurt and Goldie. If, you know, sorry, we're going to be parked out in front of your house here. They came out and insisted that we come into the house and hang out with them and watch the football games on New Year's Day. The Bulls. Oh, wow. And so we did. And Kurt had made some stew and we just had the best time. And, and we were just sitting around playing guitars and singing and and just having a blast. And that was my favorite thing. That was something that wasn't planned. It just happened. And Goldie Hawn insisted that we call home and, and let him know that we're okay. Now I wasn't as concerned about that because my parents knew I was fine. (laughs) Um, But when I called, I called home and (laughs) my mother was shrieking on the phone because the caller ID said Goldie Hawn. (laughs) (laughs) She was over the moon about that. I thought, well, that's pretty neat. And uh, that was a a day that I, I 
certainly didn't see coming, and it was just kind of a, a nice bonus. And and again, to to see uh, kind of a, a relaxed thing, we did that a lot on the road with the Crows after the shows would just be that everybody would be jamming together backstage and singing old country songs, old rock songs. So that kind of happened organically there. And it was just funny to look over and there's Kurt Russell singing along with the, with the group. And it just, it was just interesting. And, uh, but yeah, they were really sweet to us and it was, it was really nice. And, and yeah, and that whole tour that we were on with them, Kate was, was traveling with them. So we'd known her, you know, she was just one of the group. And at the time she was talking about this new movie that they were working on that was uh, almost famous so that came out after our tour, but it was, looking back on that, it was kind of like she was researching that role yeah. <laughs> be on the road with the band. And uh, just, yeah, we, we really, really had a great time with them. So seeing, seeing that movie then eventually, you know, there's a lag time there where the movie takes a year to come out. It was really interesting to have, having spent so much time with her and feeling, not feeling like I know her, you know, how much do I know her? I don't know her. Right. But, having that time together as just a, a regular person and then seeing her in the big screen and seeing her get all that attention was, was really uh, entertaining and fascinating. So. Now, did I hear you say, hear you say in passing earlier, you worked with the smashing pumpkins. We did uh, some festival things where they were on that. And uh, again, there were times where you were like, what are we doing here? This is crazy. You know, and, and I walk out with an upright bass and these people are just staring at you like, what is this? <laughs> um, there, there was a British band called the prodigy about that time. Yeah. As well. mm. uh, we, we'd find ourselves. Those were the two most bizarre pairings. Now it wasn't just us and smashing pumpkins. It was a festival thing where, you know, they were, they were on, and we were on a couple acts before them, you know, <laughs> but uh, uh, Billy Corgan from smashing pumpkins came through the museum a couple weeks ago. And, and I was reminiscing with him about, you know, what a strange place to find myself in, you know, in front of his, his crowd and, and, uh, and all that. But, uh, but yeah, again, it's, again, it's all just music. I mean, that often makes for some of the best musical moments when an odd pairing happens. You know, if, if- yeah. I do see it from the promoter side, which I growing up as a music fan, I never thought about this. You're thinking, why would they pair this band with this band? They have nothing to do with each other. Well, selling tickets, you're going to, you're going to reach more people because some of the people are coming just to see the first band. Some of the people are coming just to see the second band. So I, I get that now from a pure dollars and cents side of things. I see it. But again, growing up and going to shows, I would be like, why is this guy playing with this guy? This makes no sense. But Well, the, the Crows took a lot of bands out that we and Ian and I went on to like, you know, they took out government mule early in their career uh, they took out a band from Europe called the soundtrack of our lives that Ian and I both are big fans of. And also they were really good at turning people into music. We talk about it all the time. I'm a little feet fan because of them playing willing. Um, yeah. I'm a, you know, exile on main street fan Cause they play torn and Freight. you know, <laughs> was it, was it fun being around people like that? Like Chris, cause everybody tells us Chris has this like encyclopedic type knowledge and he seems to kind of get into some of that folk stuff and obscure country stuff. Did you, did you guys kind of hit it off on a musical level, just talking about music? Absolutely. And, and again, a surprise, like you've already been through, uh, finding out uh, Chris and Rich's dad had, had connections to country players way back. And, and they, yeah, they did know the old country stuff and they were uh, 
Now, just I'm encyclopedic too, but every day I discover music that I didn't know anything about. Right. Same with them. They would hear an old song we were covering and they would come up like, who's that? What, you know, what, who did that song and where did that come from? And, and it, we would help connect each other's dots. Going on forward from once I learned that the Crows would bring in these acts to open for them, I paid close attention to who was going out and opening for the Black Crows because I realized what their mission was kind of to, to open people's ears to new things. And so I definitely paid attention to that. And um, it was really an amazing musical thing because at, at the heart of all of it, like I said, they had been through this, I keep saying this hurricane, this crazy thing where you know, they had an album that blew up and was, it was bigger than they were and, and that kind of thing. And, and us to a much smaller degree, but it was this chaotic, you're looking for grounding. It's, it's like I said, every day you're with these amazing people and, and you're overwhelmed and you find yourself in these situations talking to somebody about music is grounding. And I realized that Chris definitely needed that and Steve needed that. And we would get together and listen to Junior Brown record or, you know, get on the bus and, and Hey, listen to this. This is, this is great new stuff. And, and, uh, and they would turn us on to stuff. And, and I was impressed to learn that they had so much more depth to them. They weren't just about, hey, we're a jam band and that's all I want to hear about. They wanted to have a foundation. They had a foundation. They right. wanted to expand that foundation. And that really, really hit home to me that they were a lot more than just, oh, they had a couple big MTV hits and they're just coasting on that. They, they certainly weren't just that. Now, 2001 comes around, you put out the This Is BR549 album, and then you kind of stepped away from the band shortly after that. What led to your decision to, to do that? Well, it was Chris Robinson has a big part in this. I didn't even think about this until you just asked that question. Okay. 1999. On one hand, we had success beyond our wildest dreams. We started out playing for tips in a little club in Nashville and who could have seen what happened couldn't have seen that coming at all. On the other hand, we didn't sell 10 million albums. You know, we, we, we were putting records out and doing fine and making money, but it, we, weren't, we weren't set to retire. Right. I was looking to start a family, and I wanted to have children but not be – I looked at it like, okay, I've got time. I'm a young man, but at some point I need to – start a family and be home for them and not be gone on the road. I know that some people do it and, and people find a way to do it, but I didn't want to see myself being 45 years old and still constantly on the road and missing everything. So every six months I would kind of assess where we were business wise and way you know, and, and my wife at the time, we would we would talk about it because I was gone constantly. We were just gone on the road for eight years. So, you know, that's asking a lot of her to put up with that. And, uh, now, we didn't have kids yet. 
but we would talk about it and we would, we would kind of say, okay, well, let's, you know, yeah, it's worth doing another six months. Let's do it. You know, we had too many things going and these things that were uh, good deals and, and things that were happening that made it worth doing. Six months would go by, we would reassess it. Okay, I'm going to stay on. So again, this went on for like two years. And it, right when it got to the point where it was like 50-50, like I didn't know if I step out here and then next week something clicks and they sell 10 million records, you know, I'm going to regret it. You know, I had this time where I was venting to Chris Robinson at his house. I guess we were in LA, we were off and, and we just got together with him and it, it wasn't at a show. It was at his house. We were, we were like on his back deck by the pool and we're sitting there and I'm telling him my, my thoughts, my, my things. And he just, he just put it as simple as could be. He said, are you doing it because you love it? Or are you doing it because it might take off next week? And when he said those words back to me, it was like, oh, I, I quit. I'm done. Like it was, it was black and white then. When he, it took somebody to say it back to me. And it was Chris. And he said, he said you should only be doing this if you, you love it. And, and up to that point, I had been doing it for the right reason. And, and it finally got to the point where I was kind of just hanging around in case it took off. So I credit Chris with giving me some, some clear-headed uh, advice there. And then, so it was after that uh, that I talked to my wife about it and, and met with the band. And, and now I honored all the commitments we still had booked and, and uh, stepped aside then. But it was, yeah, it was a process that went through quite a while. So your two biggest career moves, your counselors were Keith Richards and Chris, and Chris Robinson. That's true. That is true. <laughs> well, I'm screwed, aren't I? <laughs> do you um do you still keep in contact with any of the guys in the band? Well, funny you mentioned that. I was in a restaurant in East Nashville not long ago, and I saw Chris across the way, and I didn't want to bother him. And I, so much time's gone by. I didn't. I didn't. Uh, and I and I watched as people came up to him and asked for selfies, and, and he was polite, but I could tell I I knew just not bother him. You know, it, it, I could I could see some of the interaction that that I needed to just give him the space. And a uh, little bit of time went by, and then he approached me and he said, "Are you going to ignore me all night?" <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so I I told him where my mind was and why I wasn't. Uh, approaching him and uh, so we laughed about that but uh, that stroked my ego a bit too but uh, <laughs> I, I didn't uh, I know he gets recognized everywhere he goes and you know I wanted to to give him some space so so that was nice we, we caught up and talked a bit and but yeah definitely uh, I, I was never that close with Rich but uh, but you know it was, it, was, it was more in tune with Chris and, and Steve uh, no problem with Rich at all just that was just the way it went down. And uh, I think the brother thing uh, <laughs> always, always is there. But, uh, yeah, that, that was a, a thing with, uh, with Steve. And uh, Steve's brother is, is around town, too. I cross paths with him sometimes. And, but, yeah, I really, I really did appreciate our time that we had with them. And like I said, we needed some guidance, and they were there to give it to us. And they really did, uh, obviously, open some doors for us, but, but also just personally really – really help us out. Well, Jay, first of all, thank you for coming on. This was fascinating, honestly. Mm. Um, 
you know, the, when you start thinking about bands that are, that were opening bands that are associated with the Crows, BR549 is always one of the top three or four that you see people talk about and mention. So, um, Ian and I'll be in Nashville, hopefully late March. We'll come by the museum and say hello to you. Great. Great. And, is, is that for the rock and pod thing? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. Come um, ask for me and I'll, I'll show you some cool stuff. And, uh, and all your listeners come see the musicians hall of fame and check it out. And I'll tell you some more black crow stories. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So we always let our guests give us a song to play out. It can be any song it can be a BR five, four, nine song it can be anything. What do you want us to play out with? Cash on the Barrelhead. Chris always wanted to sing that with us. And um, a lot of people have done it through the years, but uh, find any version of Cash on the Barrelhead. I think maybe he was hip to it from maybe Graham Parsons doing it, uh, but it's an old country tune. Yeah. So that, that's one I think of uh, when, when you bring that situation up. So Cash on the Barrelhead. How about we find a version of uh, you guys doing it with the crows? Because I think I have a few of those kicking around. So, yeah. <laughs> well, okay. All right. Let's hear it. Yes. All right, All right, everybody. Our thanks to Jay McDowell. If you're in Nashville, swing by the Musicians Hall of Fame. Uh, Ian and I are definitely going to check it out. He's, he's really piqued my interest with it. Uh, here's Cash on the Barrelhead. Stay tall, everybody. <laughs> Put me in the jailhouse for loitering on the street. Did the judge read the verdict? I was a guilty man. He said $45 for 30 days in the can. So that'll be cash on the barrel head, son. You can make your choice, you're 21. No money down, no credit plan. No time to chase you. A telephone number on a laundry slit. I had a kind heart of jail with a six gun hit. He let me call long distance, said number please. I no sooner had I told him, she shouted out at me. Oh.